This is the Futures Heritage Podcast. My name is Anki Petersen. And I'm Robin Hooks. And we are your hosts. Welcome to the last episode of the Futures Heritage Podcast in 2020. Also known as the year the United States President Trump got voted out of office. Brexit finally happened with a deal, but also the year in which a global pandemic struck the world. This episode is our year in review, uh, in which we look back upon the first so-called season uh, of our podcast and the conversations that we had and the topics we've discussed with all our guests. But first, we are going to start this episode with a short introduction of ourselves. <laughs> what? <laughs> a few weeks back, we received an email where it actually became clear to us that we haven't introduced ourselves properly uh, since we started this whole project. So basically, no one knows who we are uh, and actually why we started this whole podcasting thing. Yeah, it was funny. We, also, we always do a very elaborate introduction of our guests, but we never did that for ourselves. So we're making up for what we should have done, I don't know, maybe in the first episode. <laughs> exactly. So, well, first, Robin, can you tell me something about yourself? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So as I said, I'm Robin Hooks. I'm 28 years old. I did a bachelor and research master in history at the Radboud University in Nijmegen in the Netherlands. I noticed when I listened to earlier episodes with our guests that I was a bit less uh, internationally oriented than a lot of our guests. I only did a semester of studying and research at University College London during my research master. And during my bachelor, a local public archaeology project called Nijmegen Graaft, or Nijmegen Digs, translated, uh, really opened my eyes to public history, public archaeology, and the heritage sector. Uh, so one year after graduating, uh, in 2017, I started working at Erfgoe Brabant, which is a provincial heritage organization. First, uh, in the form of a traineeship and later uh, on a regular contract. Over there, I'm an editor uh, for our online heritage platform aimed at the wider audience. It's called Um And that's the day job I sometimes mention in uh, earlier episodes. So now everybody's caught up with what I do, basically. But this is also where your podcasting uh, journey Basically Begin. standard. Yeah, that's true. I also yeah. make, for Brabant's Everpunt, and I also make a, a podcast about local heritage, basically, uh, with researchers, etc. Nice. So, Anki, your turn. <laughs> so, I'm Anki, Anki Petersen, uh, 29 years old, and I have a background in cultural studies. I did this uh, um, study called Language and Culture Studies, where you could basically choose whatever topics would have your interest. So, I did some film history, television studies, some, some art philosophy. But I ended up doing a master's in design cultures and then another master's in heritage studies. And I've studied uh, some places in Europe, in Bologna, in Rome, Amsterdam and Utrecht. And I live in Utrecht now for, I think, about eight years. I started working as a freelancer in the cultural heritage sector about four years ago. Uh, and I did some different projects in cultural heritage and transformation, so about uh, on, on repurposing old buildings and uh, those kind of things. Uh, and more recently on cultural heritage and community participation. Uh, and also from next month on, I will be working also part-time at the Ministry of Defence on the topic of cultural property protection and cultural emergency response. Uh, so kind of a different angle in the uh, cultural heritage field, but still um, I'm very much looking forward to this. All types of projects. 
at all types of well you're more uh, internationally oriented than me as well <laughs> both Bologna, Rome, Amsterdam so well why we started this podcast is basically well because we were involved in the uh, the Futures Heritage uh, which is a project that originated from Erfgoed Brabant where Robin works and the Futures Heritage is a platform and community for uh, young cultural heritage professionals and students uh, giving them opportunities to develop themselves and to present themselves and their work. So at one point we thought in these times of uh, social distancing and stuff that we could use podcasting as a new way of giving young cultural heritage professionals a stage, basically a stage that we build ourselves. <laughs> yeah, or a voice. Or a voice, yeah. <laughs> well, they already have a voice, of yeah, course. that's true. But we amplify them. Yeah, we record the voice. <laughs> we record the voices. <laughs> exactly. So, so yeah, that, this is kind of the origin story of the Futures Heritage podcast. Yeah. And in this episode, we don't have a guest. We should mention, you mentioned social, uh, social distancing this year. We should mention this is the first time we're in the same room recording this podcast at a social distance, of course, but still. Safe um, distance, yep. We, uh, we thought it would be fun to kind of look back on the last five episodes of the podcast and basically talk about what caught our eye, things our guests brought to attention, uh, etc. So that's what we're going to do in uh, this episode. So there were a few topics that really stood out for us uh, during the last five episodes. Robin, uh, maybe you want to kick off? Yeah, the last couple of days I basically listened back to all the episodes, even though I edited them as well. So I've heard them a lot, but now still new things. Them. Yeah. yeah, no, well, not fortunately not. <laughs> <laughs> not yet. Uh, <laughs> but still, some new things caught my eye, and listening to them in quite rapid succession, I also saw some like some common themes, some common problems. That's probably the same for you. And the first thing I really noticed, because it's, the, it's at the beginning of each episode, we introduce our guests. And mm-hmm. the first thing I really noticed was how most of our guests, I'm not entirely sure whether it was all our guests, but at least most of our guests have kind of this staggered education in the sense that they do a bachelor's, then maybe go into the, the normal work field and then do a master's or do a bachelor master's, then do work, then want to do a PhD or are doing a PhD. And I thought it ties in with, I think, a lot of themes um, that we spoke about in a lot of the episodes, but I also think it kind of says something about being a young person, a young professional or a young student and wanting to work in a heritage education or a heritage sector. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's it kind of maybe a symptom of how difficult it is of getting into the sector and getting yourself established either in a, a, a more traditional role like I on a, on a fixed contract or as an independent uh, professional such as yourself. So I thought it was really interesting. It also says something, I think, about the drive of some of our guests because it was amazing to speak uh, to them and hear their ideas. But Yeah, because they were all young but really had extensive experience in, yeah. in some in different fields and others in, in the cultural heritage field already from work, from uh, volunteering, uh, in combination with their studies so there was actually no one that really did like a three years bachelor's and then one year master and then bam going on to the to a career yeah. in, in whatever so yeah that was interesting and and I think definitely a symptom of well how difficult it can mm. be to find your own way uh, in the cultural heritage field yeah it's probably a symptom of both the drive of the, our guests but also just how difficult it is that you kind of 
maybe you need to earn some money before going back to a master's or um, doing an internship or do a lot of volunteering in a year um, to amplify your chances of a master, a place in a master or a place for a PhD, etc. So we've talked a lot about or our guest talked a lot about uh, the accessibility of the, the field for new professionals or for young people. And I think, yeah, this was a really, really a sign, which kind of, or a symptom, I, I guess, which came from the uh, the episode. But also I think that, well, for me, if I look back uh, on my uh, studying period, when I started my bachelor's, I had no clue uh, of what, what I w- would want to do mm-hmm. and I definitely wouldn't have guessed that it would be cultural heritage that would really have my interest and I think I, I also recognize that with a few of my guests, Miruna for example, who is a geographer and then turned into a heritage uh, enthusiast and I could really relate to her story as well that the whole studying and volunteering and working period is also a, really a search for mm. your own place. For what um, you want to be, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. basically. Mm. And not being like a very concrete job, but like where, where your real interests lie and which you want to do for the rest of your, uh, yeah, your exactly. life or at least, I don't know, the next 10 years, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, true. And you, what, what was one of the topics that, that caught your eye or that, that stood out to you? Well, of course, there's always the issue of Funding, uh, the, the F word, <laughs> as I called it before. Yeah, I think we had several episodes where funding was really one of the the key issues that we talked about. I think we mentioned it in every episode, or I guess mentioned it in basically every episode. Yeah, in some way or another. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It's kind of an obvious topic, maybe, to talk about <laughs> when it comes to cultural heritage or the cultural field in general, that there's always struggling with finding enough funding and finding the right funding. So I think in that regard, it's also very important to well to share these stories and to keep the lines open in terms of uh, being connected internationally and, and uh, making other people aware of the opportunities that are there maybe European opportunities mm. or international opportunities in some countries. Um, so the, the funding issue, well, I don't think it's, it's an issue that will go away in, uh, <laughs> in a short period of time. I think we will always have these questions about um, you know, can we get enough funding for our heritage projects and is there enough, do institutions find it important enough to spend uh, money on cultural heritage like the European Union or national governments? And there's always the question of what is enough, of course. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and some points that were raised, uh, I think it was in the second episode by Antigone, from Cyprus was that it's also very important to look at the way in which uh, funding can Mm. be spent. And I think this is also a very important point in terms of, well, when you look at the sustainability of your organization and the sustainability of funding, that it's very easy to go from uh, project to project, find small grants to to realize an event or to realize a podcast, I don't know. (laughs) but then the sustainability of your organization is not really guaranteed because it's it's going from one project into the other. Yeah, yeah. Maruna mentioned a similar uh, a similar problem yeah. with the RK being basically just a couple of people who are being paid to do and the rest was volunteering because of there could there wasn't a, a reliable income source basically uh, in 
in terms of funding and Antigone as well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think, um, well, that, that international collaborations as the Futures Heritage is now trying to do together with Arche from Romania and together with another organization is maybe also a way to, to tackle these kinds of problems and, and maybe uh, kind of join forces and share knowledge and expertise yeah. and maybe join forces on the long term in, in, in the same grant to be able to develop this kind of sustainability in a certain project. Yeah, it really inhibits longer term goals for heritage organizations or even things like, I think Antigone mentioned peace building. Yeah. Uh, in which heritage played a part in her in her view and, and or could play a part or should play a part. And that's really difficult if you're just working from project to project. And the projects can be amazing and probably are amazing, but it's difficult to go, you know, to look further than maybe a year or maybe two years uh, to uh, a longer term future if all you can do is get project funding. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and it's obviously also an, an important subject in terms of we're in the middle of a pandemic and I'm going to guess there's going to be budget cuts coming up somewhere in uh, probably across Europe in the coming years. Yeah. I mean, obviously that's kind of speculative, but I don't think there's going to be a lot more money than there has been the past couple of years. It will be interesting to see how, for example, funding organizations try to fill the gap or whether it just means a lot of great initiatives are basically have to stop because of a lack of funding. Yeah. Exactly. That would be sad. But. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it was Eva in the first episode who who explained the importance of these, well, of the continuation of these cultural projects uh, really well, uh, and and she explained it uh, mostly in regard to children's education, but it co- of course can also be applied to to adults' education or uh, or the experience cultural experiences of of children and ad- adults in general. Mm-hmm. Is that we we really need to well, to keep these creative experiences going, no matter how deep the economic crisis is going to be. Because you could already see at the beginning of the pandemic that people were missing these kind of experiences the yeah. most. I'm, I'm still missing them. <laughs> when am I yeah. coming to see live music? I yeah, don't yeah. know. <laughs> Museums are closed. Damn it. Yeah. Yeah. That's... Um... I remember that from the that was the first episode, right? Yeah. yeah. That we um, we were talking about how it could offer inspiration or hope or whatever in in such a time, and that goes for like the arts in general because that's what they are. We we tell each other stories as human beings to uh, yeah. look to the future or see a future that we want to be or tell stories about the past to become inspired by them. It's been difficult, I think. It would be a shame if that got thrown under the bus. Yeah. In March, April, when the the first wave basically hit Europe, people were like in Italy. I I saw pictures of people playing the national anthem from their balconies, and that's that's music, that's culture, that's something they put, or they they took hope from, or inspiration from, or a sense of togetherness, I guess. Yeah, exactly. As well, uh, when you're talking about the national anthem, it only highlights the importance of of art, the arts and, and heritage. Uh, as well. Did we have a moment like that in the Netherlands? I can't remember. There was some initiative to go outside and and clap for healthcare workers. That yeah. was also something that happened in like France and and I think I saw it in yeah, the UK. Almost in the every country. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. I think that that happened as well in yeah. I don't know April or or yeah. May somewhere like that. But not really a musical initiative, right? No. No. 
I remember at some at one point there was a, a, a radio host mm-hmm. on Free FM, I think, who took the initiative of organizing something like a. They played. Uh, this song you will never walk alone yeah, simultaneously the same, yeah the same song on all uh, different radio stations yeah across like Europe yeah, yeah. <coughs> I thought that was really cool yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it shows how I mean it shows how these things can unite people or, or inspire people or offer hope or sympathy or whatever yeah I think that will be necessary even more in the coming years exactly um, yeah so so this is a call out to all the government officials to stop <laughs> cutting the budgets yeah please it's not a luxury i think we've we've been t- telling stories about the past basically since i don't know probably since the neanderthals i don't know since cave paintings are basically probably stories about yeah, the past yeah. so it's 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 so kind of the integral. beginning of humanity yeah it's integral to the human experience i think to tell yeah. each other stories um and, and to tell each other stories to teach uh, uh, other people things or or to inspire or whatever yeah um, yeah, there was this um, initiative again, Italy. Mm-hmm. I think in Italy they mm-hmm. really understood this very well. Yeah. <laughs> this initiative, uh, I think it was a library in the north of Italy where they uh, started organizing these um, uh, reading sessions. Uh, oh, right. So, so um, they would connect uh, a listener and a reader. Mm-hmm. Uh, through I think Skype or something or they would connect them virtually or, or through telephone that's of course also possible mm-hmm. and the one would read to the other from yeah. a book oh, that's amazing yeah <laughs> and that could be just a, a, a book on request or, yeah, or yeah, yeah. the reader would pick a book it could be could be anything and uh, at one point even uh, uh, like more famous people in Italy like government officials mm. or the um, maybe even the the president of Italy uh, joined this initiative. So cool. you you could be like this this grandpa in a city in Italy, and then being called for a reading session. Uh, <laughs> that the, you you would have the the president of Italy yeah. on the other or a line. minister or whatever. Yeah, yeah or a minister. Cool. Yeah, and, and they would read to each other. I thought that was a really really good initiative as well. I think these these cultural these inspiring cultural things they are the best. <laughs> we might be a bit biased, of course, but still, I think I really do think it's part of the human experience to tell each other stories or or yeah. to cherish things from the past in times of crisis. I mean, the past year has certainly been for people. Yeah, exactly. And I think it was in the second episode, Antigone. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned it already before that the cultural heritage projects that were going on there also really contributed to peace building on the yeah. island. So maybe for us in, in times of peace, it's maybe more of a luxury, if it already is a luxury, but relatively mm-hmm. more of a luxury than in country like Cyprus. Yeah, yeah, there was just a little tangent. There was just something I completely didn't realize that there's still a, basically an active conflict zone in Europe. Yeah. That's something, I mean, I live far away from Cyprus, but it's just something that's not on the front of my mind. Um, and that uh, a pandemic like this basically threw them back a couple of decades uh, in, the, yeah. in the whole peace process by the closing of the uh, of the checkpoints. Exactly, because it was the first time since 2003 yeah, that the checkpoints like that. were yeah. closed. Really heavy stuff. Talking of checkpoints or walls. <laughs> <laughs> was there um, something else? Some other topic. We talked about funding. Something else that stood out to you? 
Well, another topic that was discussed uh, several times was uh, accessibility in uh, relation to cultural heritage. And, well, this is accessibility from uh, many points of views, mm -hmm. of course, yeah. because we already kind of mentioned the accessibility to the cultural heritage field. And that's, that is one of the recurring points that we also always keep talking about in the future's heritage uh, in general, that your career in cultural heritage shouldn't be dependent on who you know and at what events you have been, yeah. uh, but uh, it should be more open and more accessible um, also to people who cannot afford to do unpaid internships and stuff like that. It's also about accessibility of cultural heritage in terms of... Yeah, the way uh, Jeroen, for example, talked about it in the, the third episode. To, to engage people who might not normally come to an archive or, or a museum and, and to reach these people. Yeah. And, and, and not throwing up barriers in terms of like you have to be a member of a library or um, you have to be a researcher at a university to be able to, be able to go to a, a particular archive, but to make that basically available to all people. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. of course, there comes a, a online that's a lot easier in, in terms of like we, can, we can't at the moment, literally, we can't go to or we shouldn't go, I should say, we can, but we shouldn't uh, go to a museum in London. We can't, they are closed. Um, to an archive in London. But normally that might be a bit difficult. And when you do the, those things online, then it, it, it helps, uh, I guess. Yeah, I think uh, it was indeed uh, Jeroen talking about this. So I think the accessibility of heritage is a topic that is being embraced in different countries uh, by different institutions a lot more in the last few years. And this is not only about lifting the barriers of entrance fees or membership fees and all that, but also about, about recognizing the importance of access from communities to their cultural heritage and the way in which this can be an empowering thing. Yeah. Well, this was really illustrated in, in the third episode with Jeroen, where he talked about the way in which the Bishopsgate Institute is addressing this and the way in which they uh, uh, make uh, their archives accessible uh, so anyone can enter without uh, necessarily having to um, make themselves known in terms of showing ID mm -hmm. and, and stuff like that. So the importance of accessibility is really something that is gaining attention. So that is a positive development, I think. Yeah, he had a great uh, quote about that. I think maybe we, we can listen to uh, to that quote as well. I know accommodating this impact that heritage, culture and history can have on societies and on sort of local communities or sort of wider communities um, as a concept. Because we have so many archives and so many sort of collections from all these different types of people and all these different types of groups it really enables these people to have a home for their history, which is accessible to everyone, which is difficult during lockdown, of course. But before, basically anyone could come in at any time asking, I want to see this object, or I want to know more about LGBTQ plus life in the early 60s in, I don't know, South London. And then we would just bring it up for them and it's also, I think, both empowering for those groups, but also maybe helping these groups realize that they are important in that sense, empowering, and that they 
contributed things to society uh, or um, exactly. they might not think of what they are doing or who they are as being part of a history or, be, or being part of the heritage of a place or, or a time. Yeah. Well, they are. So I think that's probably one of the, the most challenging things, I think, for heritage professionals generally is to kind of get people who might be a bit scared or, or, or put off by the label heritage might think, oh, that's elitist and that's not for me. Yeah. that's not for us um, to, to bring those in into yeah. the, the, the sector or to be available to them and, and not only be available to them because then you still have this kind of barrier of maybe kind of fear or mistrust or whatever, but also to actively look for those people and, and talk to them. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and this is uh, what, what you say, to actively look for these people. It takes effort mm. um, to be accessible as an institution. And this is... Um, well, in the Netherlands, I see several institutions that are uh, putting in these efforts uh, and, and trying to, for example, collaborate with local communities or neighborhoods um, and kind of uh, democratize their whole um, way of doing things. But at the same time, many institutions are still, uh, even only in the language that they speak, kind of throwing up barriers yeah. because the language in, in many museums and many cultural institutions is just sometimes a very difficult language even to an, a native speaker it's it's like you can enter an exhibition and, and be like what the hell are these <laughs> might still be really scientific and, yeah uh, exactly yeah. exactly i know of one institution that is on the one hand really putting in these efforts in democratization and, and, and trying to engage also people who are not uh, academically mm -hmm. educated, uh, but at the same time completely disregarding the language that they are using. Mm. And, and this is a language that also I, as a heritage professional who is busy with these kind of topics, I have trouble understanding them. Yeah. So that is really... Um, it, you, you really need to be aware of uh, how you can be accessible from uh, these different angles. So not only the economic angle, but also um, being accessible in, in, in language and in the way you do things. Yeah, yeah. then that kind of ties into one of the things I noticed is how basically all our guests had a, a real drive and a real passion for bringing heritage in what, in what form it may be, be it architecture or uh, intangible heritage or whatever to a wider audience where especially like the use of the, the type of language you use etc really makes a difference and talking to people about that that what they are doing is heritage that speaking a local dialect or whatever you, you could consider as, as being part of the heritage of a place or an area and obviously with the, the pandemic i think that's also something i think your for example said and um uh, carlotta really mentioned this as well that the online part which we all were forced to do or we all are forced to do. Let's not talk in past uh, tenses. Uh, we all are <laughs> still doing is is the, the the digital skypes, the 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 digital meetings, etc. The digital lectures as well really seem to have expanded the audience for a lot of people. I think Carlotta was mentioned this the most strongly in terms of like she said. Well, normally we wouldn't have done this much with ESAC, but yeah. because now everybody's used to talking via zoom or whatever now we can yeah and Jeroen mentioned live streams i'm me and my day job i i we do much more live streams as well well at the moment it's the only option of reaching or one of the only options of reaching a, a, a wider audience but yeah i think hopefully 
in the future it will be easier to organize a conference and also do that via live stream or whatever or do parts via live stream yeah exactly create this, these kind of hybrid forms yeah. uh, and, and also take with us the the lessons that we've learned during this pandemic and how to really engage online uh, successfully the hybrid forms yeah. uh, that we can apply in in the future when we can finally meet each other again and and <laughs> Well, especially these these uh, international conferences that were usually very well, very difficult to join, especially as a young professional mm. with not that much money and not that no. many opportunities to travel to wherever to join a conference that cost like five hundred pounds to yeah. to even just join. Or so I think that was uh, that is also- maybe a development that we now finally realize that that can also be. A very valuable yeah. thing and a good experience, and that we don't always have to be, you know, in the same room to have meaningful exchanges. It's environment. It's good for the environment as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not flying all around the world exactly. or all around Europe, but still, yeah, it's also just terrifying to go on your own to an international conference. I find, but or at least <laughs> when when you're starting out, you don't know people or whatever. And you just walk in there, and all of, there's all these people talking, saying intelligent things. Yeah, yeah, and then, <laughs> and then you're there as a young professional, mm. just out of grad school. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Trying to uh, to be a professional. And so one of the things about the issue of reaching a wider audience uh, that was discussed, I think, during a few episodes, is also about kind of reevaluating the role of the heritage professional and and. The heritage professional in the heritage field yeah. uh, and uh, realizing that um, the uh, collaboration with people from outside your sector professionally but also the collaboration with local communities can be very fruitful in this so that we kind of need to break uh, these barriers and I think young people are um, or young people working in the cultural heritage field are actually really making efforts in trying to break these barriers and, and, and making things more uh, interdisciplinary. Basically ties in everything we've talked about so far. Yeah. In terms of that experts aren't the only people who should get a say on uh, local heritage or on heritage, but also like people who have a, a, an emotional connection to a certain area. I think Maruna mentioned uh, this in uh, in her episode, of, uh, which may have a, a, an emotional connection or for whom a certain area or a certain building just performs a, a particular function which is important in that community and then uh, a local heritage expert could say well it's not that pretty a building so we can knock it down but then for the community it's really important or it has a, a specific memory and in, in that sense listening to those people I think will give you a, the wider audience that we talked about and working with that wider audience will make the heritage more accessible and having that wider audience will also mean that people will be um, more inclined to give funding to heritage projects, both in the sense of like donations or as a private person, but also on the policy and political level, uh, for example, voting on parties who or local parties in local elections or national elections who say heritage is important or yeah. is important in a, in a particular way. So recognizing um, the worth of these, uh, yeah, these projects. Yeah. It, it really ties into 
basically everything we've uh, we've talked about. Yeah, and I think it was really um, was really good to see the way in which these these different people from really different parts of Europe who are well basically all working for the same goals, mm. making cultural heritage more accessible yeah. and, and uh, really realizing the value of cultural heritage in society and, and what cultural heritage can mean, for example, peace building, but also for uh, the general education of children. Yeah, it's amazing to see how all these young people are working on the same types of topics and this, with the same kind of ideas and the same motivations, really. I think it was uh, Miruna in our latest episode who kept emphasizing to look for the silver lining in, mm. in this all. And I, uh, I found that really, um, really encouraging. And especially in this context that, well, of course, there are uh, some setbacks in, in limited accessibility, like physical ac- accessibility yeah. during the pandemic and limited funding. Uh, but the efforts that are being me- made are really encouraging to see. Well, I think that even um, the the next year, we of course are, are very. Uh, it's very hard to predict what will be happening in the next year. I don't. Yeah. I, I cannot. <laughs> I, I think that's right. <laughs> I don't dare to predict anything anymore. No. <laughs> At any moment, but still, these uh, projects and and these kind of uh, ambitious young people, they will they will be going on with mm. their work, doing their thing, and. Uh, trying to make uh, the cultural heritage field in Europe uh, more inclusive, more accessible and and better, basically. I think so too. That's a a good silver lining. And then hopefully we'll we'll all have learned things like the online stuff, which we can use in the future. Yeah. Um, To to go for these goals. It won't won't happen overnight, but uh, it'll be a slow march, I think. But... When there's so many young people striving for the same goals and for the same ideas, then something's bound to happen in the European heritage sector over time. Exactly. Yeah. And um, what we can do is, uh, well, we're trying to to show what they are doing and to to connect them and to uh, maybe this way inspire other people to uh, to do the same. Yeah. And, and for, for people listening who want to help, basically, I mean being a volunteer somewhere or, or being aware of your own local heritage organizations and supporting them and um, just generally making your voice heard when something's happening in, in the heritage sector which, which you don't agree with. Might that be the, just a knocking down of a local school building which you find particularly important? Well, go tell the politicians or the people at the council. You can play an active part in this uh, in this as well, even though you might not yet be in the place where you want to be. Exactly, yeah. This is what uh, Antigone said about um, the importance of realizing you are part of a collective Mm. and that you are part of a society and uh, that everything that you do can have meaning in this society and and making it a better one. That's basically a life lesson, not necessarily a heritage lesson. No, no. Which is a a good ending uh, for, uh, for our look back at all our uh, amazing guests exactly yeah and hopefully next year we can meet some more in real life hopefully hopefully in real life yeah (laughs) exactly so we've just ended uh, our year in review on a positive note with focus on the silver lining which is always good i think but before we leave you we want to share some curious new year's eve 
uh, European heritage traditions for some good luck in the next year, which I think we can all use some, mm. some good luck. <laughs> um, so the first one is from Greece. Yes, apparently uh, in Greece, the thing on New Year's Eve is to play cards, to get good fortune. And you think, well, people will lose and people will win playing cards. But losers also win, I guess, in this tradition. Because apparently the winner of the night is expected to become rich in the new year. Whereas the loser uh, will be lucky in love. So basically everybody wins, yeah, I guess. Yeah, also good, I guess. Yeah. I mean, you could, maybe people should, will people lose on, on purpose? I lose on purpose. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Um, you can pick which one you would suit, would suit you best. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and apparently they also... Uh, smash a pomegranate as a, a symbol of prosperity and if it's filled with seeds that's also apparently a good sign all right uh, i have another one from italy which i found rather odd mm. there's a custom in italy apparently uh, which is supposed to bring good luck uh, which is wearing red underwear on new year's eve so it, it's apparently hard to explain why and and how this began but, well, it's, it's Italy and they know fashion, so probably uh, <laughs> they know something we do not know about uh, the choice of clothing. So red underwear, red socks or whatever during uh, New Year's Eve is uh, a good wager for a better 2021. It's interesting that the internet article were basing this on saying red socks, but it's talking about underwear. I don't consider socks underwear, but that's just... I think yeah, I think exactly. it's read something else that they're talking about, but yeah. <laughs> Maybe an Italian person who is listening can explain this tradition to yeah. us. <laughs> Let's see. And a complicated thing happens in Scotland, which is interesting. Uh, it's it's a especially complicated name called Hockmanay. I think I pronounced that right. I don't know. So that's the name for New Year's Eve. Yeah, exactly. For the Scots, basically. Yeah. And for example, uh, during it's just a whole all types of local celebrations which take different shapes in in different localities. Uh, but apparently, for example, it's also important who the first person to set foot in your home is uh, after New Year's, and that person apparently has to carry gifts like food, whiskey, and coal. Which food whiskey sounds good. I don't know what you're going to do with the coal. Um, <laughs> coal is a very specific one. Just, yeah, for, for the fire. I mean, you yeah, need to be warm. I, I was thinking maybe yeah. it, has a, it has some traditional meaning of warmth or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you have the food, you have the, you have the booze. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then you have the, the warm fire that warm is fueled up yeah. out by the coal. Yeah. But that also brings luck, apparently. Also, it just brings whiskey, which is fine as well. <laughs> So another one, the last one, in Denmark, apparently, broken dishes are a good thing to have around New Year's Eve. So uh, apparently people go around breaking plates, smashing plates on the doorsteps of their friends and family. And the more shards there are in front of your home, the next day, the luckier and the more well-liked you are. So that's good luck in Denmark. Also, you have to clean up. Yeah, that, that it, it is a bit, a bit of a messy tradition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh well. Yeah, but it's it's. I think breaking dishes might be better than smashing a pom grenade. In terms of mess, you mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Pro probably. So for good luck in twenty twenty one, these are the things uh, that you can do. But if you happen to be a listener from Denmark, Scotland, Italy, or Greece, <laughs> and you are now thinking. Like, what, 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 what are, are they these? talking about? <laughs> yeah. 
do contact us yeah. and uh, we will be willing to rectify any <laughs> errors that we've made. So this was the Futures Heritage Podcast Season 1. And uh, hopefully we will see you in the next season of the Futures Heritage Podcast. Maybe in person, maybe virtually. Um, maybe you're listening and, and you want to share uh, what you thought of our podcast please do so we have an email address in the show notes and we would, would be very happy to uh, to hear your thoughts exactly and uh, have a great 2021 for now I guess yes cheers this was the Futures Heritage Podcast thank you for listening if you'd like to hear more please subscribe to our podcast channels Links can be found in the show notes. This podcast is supported by Dutch Culture Center for International Cooperation.